Nice buns, soft, fluffy, and ultra low net carbs. Discover Hero Bread, the delicious ultra low net carb bread with incredible taste and texture. Hero Bread has zero grams of sugar and is under 100 calories per serving. Plus, high in fiber with 5 to 10 grams of protein per serving. Order from Hero.co now and get 10% off your first purchase with promo code AH10. That's 10% off with code AH10. H-E-R-O dot C-O. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Take Human Action PA, episode 50. That's a big one. Uh, 50 episodes, hard to believe. I wasn't around for uh, each of those 50, but I'm glad I was able to contribute to some of them. And we've also got Autumn here with us. How are you doing, Autumn? I'm great, Calvin. Yeah, good to have you with us. Sorry to everyone out there that I did not get a notification out for this episode sooner uh the idea for the episode changed several times we originally had a guest lined up that i think i mentioned before um and bj unfortunately had to reschedule so we'll have him on in a few weeks uh so after um after thinking about it for a little bit um we were able to just line up another guest at the last minute so uh we're gonna well thank him very much for uh, jumping on board with relatively little notice. Um, hopefully we'll be able to make uh, episode 50 special for everyone out there. Hmm. Autumn, you have anything to add? Um, no, it's really great. I mean, you know, we, we would have had Mike on a little later, but so appreciative. And I think, you know, he spoke at the Libertarian Party Convention in Pennsylvania. And I know he's done a lot of state conventions this year. He's really, really taken his message out there. It's nice to see. Right. So uh, let's bring him on now. Uh, he has worked in commercial banks, international federal agencies, and the White House. He advocates for free markets and financial services and launched a successful executive education and consulting business. Uh, he's also taught economics at three universities. Uh, he served as a police officer in Broward County, Florida, from 2010 to 2021, uh, including as a field training officer for several years, and all as a registered libertarian. He also ran as an LP candidate in Florida's Congressional District uh, 20 for the year 2021 and 2022. Uh, let's welcome Mike Termat. How are you doing, Mike? Good. Uh, it's wonderful to be with you. And please don't feel like you need to uh, thank me for coming on. It wasn't so much at the last minute. It's a great pleasure to be with you. It's particularly a treat to be with you, uh, Calvin, on one of the evenings when you have Autumn with you. If I had my choice, that would have been it, but I don't want to embarrass her uh, too badly. But it's a, it's a double treat for me to be with, with you and with Autumn. So well, thanks. Farmer guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's that's nice to hear. Yeah, uh, we do have some good hosts on this show. I, I like this. You do. 
Not yeah, no disrespect to the uh, <laughs> no disrespect to the others that you've had on. That's for sure. You have a good oh, crew. Man. All right. All right. Now you're derailing me already. <laughs> okay. Well, and it's good uh, to be with you. You know, I, I didn't have anything else important lined up. I mean, I did have to leave my mother at the airport, but she'll be okay for a few hours. And I, <laughs> I sold, I sold the opera tickets and I canceled the dinner party. So I think we're in oh, pretty good yeah. shape here. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Well, I hope she'll be okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, she's a trooper, you know. I mean, okay. the walkers they build these days, they help you do almost anything, you know. Yeah. I've, and my I've, sister I've, gave yeah. her 20 bucks when putting her on the airplane. So I, I think she'll be fine until the morning. <laughs> yeah. Tesla's building, like, rock, walking uh robots with hand dexterity and stuff like that already so in a few years they'll just be like robots carrying grandmas around <laughs> yeah well that's Edward. probably true i can't afford all that calvin but i appreciate <laughs> the heads up on the technology oh man well uh before we get com completely off topic here uh let's go into a little bit about yourself so why don't you tell us about Oh, boy, uh, that's exactly what your audience wants to hear is something about me. How badly do you want to punish these poor people? <laughs> well, we, we ask everyone. <laughs> we ask everyone. Uh, uh, well, what can I tell you? I did start out as an economist. I worked in banking for a long time. Uh, went to graduate school in, in Washington, D.C. Of course, everyone goes to Washington to make the world a better place, right? Because that's where that happens. You got to work for the for the government, the seat of all power, uh, to make the world a better place. So that's the only you know, place. There's, <laughs> yeah, there's no question about what what kind of motivations there are there. All you got to do really is, you know, if you're a young conservative economist, all you really got to do is move to Washington, help the government work more efficiently, and stay out of people's lives, and everyone's going to get rich and famous, and the beer will taste better. So that was sort of the plan. Uh, didn't work out exactly that way, but. Uh, I was lucky. I went to a very uh, pro-free market graduate school at the George Washington University. So I had a, a really wonderful experience there. And, uh, you know, being in Washington is what it is. I had a lot of great experiences. I got a chance to work for the White House for a couple of years and uh, worked with some uh, Republicans in those days. Uh, did have a chance to work in the financial services industry both before that and after that. Spent a lot of time lobbying uh, Congress and the regulatory agencies in Washington on behalf of free markets and financial services. Uh, did that for a long time. And then a buddy of mine and I launched our own business. And we did that for a bunch of years. And, and that was a good time and, and a tremendous amount of hard work. If, if any of your listeners have ever uh, run their own business, you know that uh, the, the rewards better come in other ways besides just financial, because it's a tremendous amount of work. But that is how you you learn how so much of the real world works. And uh, yeah, my second career uh, went to work as a cop, which is something that I had always wanted to do. I'm a big believer in public service and uh, police work is uh, at its best anyway, nothing if not uh, public service. And I'd wanted to do it, I guess, most of my life. I originally, for the first time, took an entrance exam back in... Uh, approximately 1990, 89, 90, 91, something like that, when I was in Washington, took the entrance exam for the Metropolitan PD in Washington, D.C., and just decided 
it wasn't enough money. Just decided uh, it was going to be too difficult to raise a family on that. I don't know if that was the right decision or the wrong decision, but put it off, put it off, put it off, put it off. And finally, uh, at the age of 49, you can't really put it off much more. There becomes a point at which it, it becomes very difficult. So I uh, worked as a cop for 11 and a half years uh, from the age of 49 to 60 until about a year and a half ago and uh, ran for Congress uh, representing the Libertarian Party in South Florida in District 20, uh, which was a hoot. Uh, speaking of things uh, for which you better be well motivated because, you know, as a libertarian, the chances of doing well in terms of the vote count aren't, aren't very uh, good. But it is a tremendous vehicle to get the message out. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Uh, when you when you put the work into it, it, that's what those races are good for. They're good for getting the message out there. Uh, that, yeah. That's why we run in them, that's for sure. Um, well, well they, of course it is. And people pay attention in a way that they wouldn't otherwise pay attention if you were uh -huh. just uh, some creepy guy standing in the parking lot, right? So <laughs> yeah. if, if you're standing in the Walmart parking lot, you can at least open the conversation with, I'm running for Congress, can I give you a brochure, right? Okay. As opposed to, I'm just some random fool, uh, can I give you a brochure about something that has nothing to do with your daily life? That's going to be an uphill climb. Yeah. But as we all know, as libertarians, it's real important because nobody has heard of the party. And what they have heard is typically is, is not always that great. Uh, so we do have a branding challenge and a communications challenge and every little piece helps. Yeah. And when it comes down to it, that is the that is our strategy is the caucus. We use the those higher profile races for messaging and getting the word out there. And then we focus on winning the lower level races, the ones that are actually winnable. And that allows us to implement positive change on that. That's level. exactly how it uh, how it has to work. The the broader the race, the larger the race, the higher the race on the ticket, the more it has to be a messaging endeavor. And indeed, that's the most efficient way to to build our brand, in my view, is to use those uh, very broad races uh, to get folks attention. And, and for this reason, I think it's all the more important that in those races, whether they're statewide or a national race, it's all the more important that we run a policy focused and very principled uh, campaign that focuses on the most transformational ideas possible, the edgiest, the ones that differentiate us most from the Republican and Democratic parties. That's where that has to take place. We need to be able to define ourselves in our, in our own way and not define ourselves in the context of the other parties. And that has to happen at the top. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I can follow up on one other thing that you said uh, before. So uh, could you expand on uh, what was it that led to your transition into deciding to serve as a police officer, particularly from the other roles that you were in between being in the White House and having having your own business and everything that just seems like a complete 180 from everything that you'd done in the past. So uh, what were what were the reasons that led to that decision? Well, as, as I mentioned, I always wanted to be a police officer. So the feeling inside my head was more like I just put it off and put it off. Mm. And and finally, there came a time when not only was it more difficult to put off in terms of my age. Right. Uh, but you know, I was in a little bit of a different 
uh, financial position. We had already figured out how to get the kids through college, uh, which is the big one, of course. And once you've got that figured out, which is not to say it was easy, but once you have that figured out, how you're going to pull that off, uh, it gives you a little bit more flexibility. And, and like I say, I didn't think I could put it off anymore. You know, as someone who does believe real earnestly in, in not just public policy per se, but public service more generally, it's a great experience. You know, being a police officer was a different experience than what I had expected. No job is exactly what you think it's going to be, right? And, and, and serving as a cop is, is no exception. There are differences than what you expect. But some of the things are what you expect. It is hard work. Uh, you do fall in love with your community, which is weird. I had been warned about this. Uh, you know, you do start to take things personally. You start to care. You start to care about what happens in your zone. You get pissed when people commit crimes in your zone. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a healthy thing or a professional thing, but you do end up taking it uh, personally. It becomes quite motivating. And then, of course, what happens is you start to notice things that maybe you wish you hadn't learned. Uh, things, you know, by the time you're a cop for three or four or five years, you start to notice how the system works. You start to appreciate the difference between good police work and bad police work. You start to understand the differences between how a good business is run and how police departments are typically run. But you also notice the effects of bad public policy. You know, we, we used to laugh. I used to tell the, the folks that I worked with that if you were not an economist before becoming a police officer, you would become an economist by virtue of being a police officer. Being a cop will turn you into one because you see the effects of bad public policy up close and personal. You know, you see the effects of bad schooling, uh, bad housing policy, bad zoning. Uh, obviously, you see the effects of an insanely counterproductive war on drugs. You see the black markets that are created and what it does to people, especially when you layer on top of that, what I argue is the world's most oppressive criminal justice system on top of a war on drugs. And you see what that produces in terms of a ridiculously high incarceration rate what it does, not just to individuals, but families and whole communities. You see how crime gets concentrated in certain areas by bad zoning and housing policies and bad school policies, of course, which lead to bad schools. And this is where intergenerational, persistent intergenerational poverty comes from. It comes from bad public policy. One of the things that that you can learn in school, but you don't really appreciate until you see it firsthand is that poverty really is a function of bad public policy. It's not something that would be predicted by free markets. Some poverty, but the kind of poverty that we have in a lot of urban areas in the United States, the kind of poverty that gets passed on from one generation to the next, that kind of thing is something that is not predicted by free markets. That is the result of bad policy. And so that's the kind of the thing that you see as a cop and, and you wish you, you wish you wouldn't see it. Yeah. So if you were able, Mike, to have a magic wand and just, you know, make. And I do. Oh, good. <laughs> well, that's a great start. Oh, yeah. 
And you can make some tweaks here or there. Like, how would you better instruct that policing be conducted? That that you know, perhaps some behavioral things could change that might have a good effect on on these systemic matters you're referring to. Yeah, I do have a a number of ideas that I'll share with you, but I should probably first say it is complicated, right? And that uh, sometimes I have a tendency to accidentally make things sound overly simplistic. You know, when I say, well, you got to do these four things and everything is going to be just terrific. And the truth of the matter is that we have a cultural problem in police work. uh, And and therefore, like any cultural change, it's going to take a while, right? You have to chip away at it. We are going in the right direction in the United States in terms of police culture. I saw that even the relatively brief time I was a cop for 11 and a half years, I saw improvements, not just in my police department. I, I was lucky. I worked for a good police department, to be honest. It, it, objectively speaking, uh, our biggest problems were not the biggest problems that show up on television, right? And we were a good agency relative to the other agencies with which I was familiar that were sort of contiguous to us, agencies that we interfaced with. Uh, quite frequently. So I was lucky. You know, I, I should hasten to uh, to add that. But there are things that we can do relatively quickly that would make a significant contribution. The ultimate goal is to make police work more like other businesses. And that means imposing the effects of market forces. You know, we want it to be like other industries where good cops would make more money and Mediocre cops would get paid less money and crappy cops would get fired, right? That's that's the goal. By the way, same thing with uh, teachers, right? Another group of public sector employees that are protected by unions. And what you would hope is that that your typical local politician would take the bull by the horns and impose uh, a certain amount of discipline on the system to move in these directions. But so often local politicians are either politically captured by the unions, mm-hmm. certainly that was the case in, in the city where I worked, uh, or they're just not sufficiently competent. They don't know better. They don't know about, they don't understand police work. And so it's hands off. And so often Republicans are like, uh, you know, back the blue, no matter what. We stand behind the police no matter what, in every case we possibly can. I'm a cop, right? I'm by my nature pro-police. I still have friends that are cops. I don't say anything that dumb, right? But Republicans, they just can't help themselves. And Democrats, you know, we need fewer cops. We need to replace cops with social workers. We need to defund the police. I got to tell you, as someone who's done the job, that's as unhelpful. Reform is hard work. It's going to be hard work. And we need people who are willing to do it. It's it's hard work, just heavy lifting hard work, but it's also hard work politically. You got to take a little bit of uh, risk because so many constituents are either naturally just knee jerk pro cop or anti cop. And and so reform is uh, hard work politically as well. But some of the things that we have to do, I believe, are things like replacing qualified immunity with a requirement for police officers to carry their own liability insurance so that it's more like other high liability industries like surgeons are the classic example where they carry their own 
liability, malpractice insurance, and they're responsible for the premiums. So if you're bad at your job, you're going to get priced out of the market, right? Cops are nervous about losing qualified immunity, not because it affects so many cases, because it doesn't, but because they think it does, right? And so they naturally, when you, when you share this idea with most police officers, as you might imagine, I've had plenty of opportunity to do so, the natural reaction is, I wouldn't be able to do my job. You know, I'd be frozen with fear about losing my house because I made a mistake at work one day. And nobody wants to move into a system where that's the case. We do want a system where cops are naturally incentivized to be more careful and to align their behavior more closely with the objectives, the ethics, the values of your community. So some of that is okay, right? But consider if, what's the alternative? You know, the alternative is the system we have now where it's very difficult to seek redress in court if you feel like you've been wronged by a police officer or by a police department. Not impossible, but very difficult. That strikes me as un-American. You know, we don't say uh, in the medical field, we don't say, well, the, the, the doctor cut off the wrong foot apologies for the ridiculous exaggeration of an example here. We don't say, well, the, the doctor cut off the wrong foot, but he didn't mean to. So it's all good. You know, that's not the system we have, right? We, we need the, to preserve our right to seek some sort of manifestation of an attempt at justice in the court system. That's why the courts are there. That's what holds individuals accountable to no small extent. And consider the alternative is that individuals who are in high liability industries don't feel the pinch of their mistakes at all. The buffer between police action and feeling accountable is enormous. It's, it's in my view, it's too much. You know, I appreciate why some people feel like there, there needs to be some buffer there. You don't want an employee frozen with fear about making a mistake. Yeah. But that's what liability insurance is for. But you that's need to be- observation. That the, the buffer between responsibility, what, what, what can, we re, can we recap that? Between the police officer's action and accountability, accountability on the yeah. other hand, you know, there's a wide gap there. Yeah. There's yeah. a big buffer. And I think what we want is the type of buffer that doctors feel, right? They carry yeah. liability insurance. So it makes sense because people do make mistakes in good faith. Yeah. Uh, that's why you pay for, that's why a doctor pays for insurance. But at the same time, you know, if you make a mistake, not that anybody wants to make a mistake anyway. I mean, humans naturally... You know, you naturally want to do a good job, but some people, some people don't have the skill set. Some people don't have the right attitude. Some people shouldn't be doctors. Some people shouldn't be cops. Some people shouldn't be teachers. Some people shouldn't be in other high liability industries. Yeah. And those are the kind of people that you want priced out of the market. Yeah. So I think you're going a really long way in, in hopefully winning over people who, um, ascribe to the the opinion that all cops are bastards i'm sure you've heard right the a cab community 
So, so let's say Mike Terma is a former officer. And it runs the range, right? There are people who say that and there's people who, you know, yeah. think all cops are angels and right. neither, I mean, cops are humans. Yeah. Agreed. I do agree. And humans um, do stink. Don't get me wrong. Humans are the worst. <laughs> Very flawed. Yeah. <laughs> to be human. Um, but right. So, so highlighting Mike Termat, the former officer who also wants to abolish qualified immunity, right? That's a good for, for anybody who needs to be convinced that you're not an awful cop. <laughs> well, I can still be an awful person, but at least I think I got this particular one right. And, and the reason I think that, that we have this one right is because I really like the idea of bringing a third party in from the outside, from the private sector, to hold the system accountable in a way that politicians are either too inept to do or un politically unwilling to do. Imagine what you would really want is a local politician, whether it's the head of a county or the city or even at the state level, what you'd want is for your mayor, for example, to say, I'm not interested in dickering around with whether or not you want to get paid 60000 or $70,000. That's the usual negotiation annually. We go through that song and dance. Never mind all that. I'm going to pay you $85,000. Mm -hmm. But here's what I want, right? I want the right to pay the best officers more, and I want the right to fire crappy officers because I'm in a bad mood. Yeah, it's innately against what unions typically stand for. Of course it is. You put your finger right on it. But this is what the politicians should be negotiating for. Because yeah. I got to tell you something. The vast majority of police officers think they're pretty good at it. Most of them are right. Uh, but want to be good at it. And if you gave them the opportunity to make more money, but be responsible for their actions and held accountable and to be graded in some sense, at the expense of your buddy over here is probably going to get fired next year. Yeah. I got to tell you, it's every man for himself at that point. Well, it also, I think, would have the effect of empowering them to, well, perhaps not empowering, but emboldening them to stand up in, in the face of, as opposed to going along when something isn't really the right thing. That's exactly right. I agree with that wholeheartedly. It's not a silver bullet, right? We're not going to fix uh, every case. But it would give some incentive to uh, not only doing a good job, but not surrounding yourself with people who do, do a bad job because it will bring you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and so that's, again, I, I've been, I, I worked, I was a, a union employee very early in my career. I was just working behind a desk and yep. I was an exceptional exceptional uh exceptional contributor in my office and you worked hard they, right they wanted to keep me but i wanted advancement and they wanted to pay me more to keep me but they weren't allowed right so the, the union a, wouldn't the union contract wouldn't let them correct right so i got a bad taste in my mouth from unions in it in, in early in my career and i feel like that's part of right that 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 forcing brotherhood onto people when really what you need is for them to be policing each other. It's very counterintuitive. It's very, I, I, I'm seeing more negative effects. I, I wish that we didn't have mandatory participation in unions as much as we do. I, I agree. I agree with that wholeheartedly. 
I also think that we need to negotiate with them harder, like I say, or bring the third party in from the outside. Uh, the other thing that needs to be said about the brotherhood, in my view, and I'm sure this is not the case in every police department or with every officer, but I believe that if you if you weaken the unions, whether you got rid of them completely or not is a different matter. I mean, I'm not advocating we take away your First Amendment right to form a union. Um, but if you were to weaken the effects of unions, particularly negotiating for this uh, uh, blockade on evaluating employees on their performance, I believe that you would uh, erode some of the bad parts of the brotherhood, but you would preserve the good parts. Because the good parts are there and for the right reasons. Right. And that matters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 when you're building uh, that brotherhood, it matters why. It matters how. One of the problems we have in all public sector organizations is, you know, that absence of profit motive. And the reason the profit motive is so important to motivating employees is not merely the money per se itself. It's because everyone understands what the objective is. So it's, it's simple. And public sector organizations often, their minds wander because they're not sure what their objective is. Right. This happens a lot in police departments. Very few police departments have real strong leadership that will go in front of the rank and file and say, this is our reason for being. This is why we're here. And do so in a way that would rally the troops. This is so important because in any organization, you need to all be pulling in the same direction. Whatever direction that, pick, pick one, right? If you yeah. don't pick one, people will fill in the blank. Yeah. And so often in a unionized organization, that becomes just get me to 25 years. Yeah, covering your ass to get there, to bring it home. Yep. Just get me to 25. You know, uh, it's a difficult police work is a difficult profession out of which to transfer because you're not developing a lot of skills that work in other businesses. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, once you're in it for 10, you're looking at the 25. Or, or the 20, you know, whatever it is, you're looking at what your goal is to get as large a pension as possible. And particularly in those agencies that make the mistake of, of giving you a bonus for making it to the finish line, I think that's a real mistake. Indeed, I think that they ought to be creating incentives to get out early. Most officers will tell you that 10 years is plenty. You know, you're, you're, you're done in a lot of, you know, you're mentally... If, if you're not changing your role in that department, if you're on the road the entire time, I was a patrol officer for the entire time. You know, I had already run an organization. I had run divisions. I had been through all that. I had no interest in climbing some corporate ladder. And, and I, you know, when I went into it, I was planning on this being for three or four or five years of the most. And I really fell in love with the work. And I stuck it out. Uh, I did the 11 and a half. I, the reason I quit was to make more time to run for Congress, then came came up here to uh, to Virginia. But for a lot of people, uh, you do the 10 and you realize you're a little bit burned out. But what what am I going to do? 
So you start running for the 25 and that is not a good way for your employees to be motivated if you actually want to accomplish something meaningful. Yeah, agreed. So I think we've laid a really good foundation that that if anybody's mind is open to be being changed about whether they could like a cop or not, um, you should have accomplished that here. Well, but, I don't know about that. <laughs> oh, are, are you were you about to ask it or or should I? I was going to pivot. I was going to pivot to his financial career. What do you? Oh, think? okay. If I could ask one more question about that before okay. we move on, then. Um, so you you did touch on it as far as you know not everyone's the same uh but if you were to give like an elevator speech to a libertarian on you know if if they're of the mindset that all cops are bad like what are some things that you could say to them that would um help them see a different perspective well the first thing we touched on is that cops aren't human <laughs> so to the extent to which you're just normally frustrated by humans you're right you know, and 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 some people are just naturally frustrated by humans because we all demand perfection and mistakes are made. So, you know, we all have to sort of understand the baseline of, of what we're dealing with. Uh, the way that police are managed is every bit as flawed as you would worry. No one's going to defend that. So to the extent to which you attribute bad behavior to bad management, uh, I don't even have an interest in in turning you around you and i are on the same side i believe that the way that we manage police is just fundamentally flawed that has to change now as far as individual police officers look the reason police officers the reason people let's, let's go at this angle the reason people become police officers by and large not uniformly but almost uniformly is because they want to help out Either you want to fight crime and chase bad guys, or you want to serve the community, or you want to feel good about yourself. You know, there's a lot of that, right? There's people who come from a police family and they think that this is the way that, you know, their life is meant to play out. Or they like the idea of being seen as a police officer. Maybe not the best motivation, but it, there, there are a number of variations of wanting to play a role in public service. Given all of that, I think the objective is to take those motivations and turn it into something really useful. Because police work at its best, which is not to say in every case, but police work at its best is all about protecting your individual rights. It is a libertarian cause. It's not always executed in a libertarian fashion. And that's why we get so frustrated. But it is a libertarian cause in the sense that they're there, they're to protect you from crime. They're there, they're there to protect you from each other, us from each other, right? And one thing that, that I noticed when I became a cop that I did not expect is that police officers have an enormous amount of latitude on a case-by-case -case basis. There's typically no supervisor there. Uh, it is a team sport. You typically other, have other cops around and nobody wants to look like a jerk in front of your buddies. But uh, as far as making decisions, enormous amounts of latitude. And so one of the things that you, you, you figure out. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. 
like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. But after doing the job for a few years, I'm the last defense in terms of protecting these people's rights from me, from the government. And for most officers, not all, but for most officers, that can be very motivating. Consider, too, we all love to hate our boss, right? We all love to get mad at our employer. Well, if you're a cop, that naturally leads into, can you believe the stupid stuff the city is doing, the stupid stuff the county is doing? Can you believe the stupid laws our state is trying to make me enforce? And it occurs to you, I'm the last line of defense. Now, in my case, I was lucky. My police department had a separate unit to take care of drug issues, so I didn't really have to get involved with that very much. My primary involvement with the war on drugs was doing CPR, which is sad, right? But one thing it teaches you is what we're doing doesn't work. Ethics aside, never mind the ethics for a moment, which is a weird thing for a libertarian to say. As a practical matter, objectively speaking, just empirically, the war on drugs doesn't work. It really is a medical problem and we criminalize it. We drive it underground, we create black markets. And if we've learned anything in economics over the last hundred years, it's that black markets are dangerous. They're inherently deadly. We see it at the border today, right? The Mexican border, Mexican, Arizona, Mexican, uh, Texas border. We see it, uh, human trafficking, uh, sex work, drugs, you name it, black markets are deadly. And it, it happens when a government tries to criminalize something that our culture isn't ready to completely condemn. Right. When people try to impose their values on other people and they try to make the criminal justice system, public policy at the end of the chain, try to affect upstream culture, which doesn't work. That's where black markets come from. And as a cop, you naturally see the dumb things that your government is trying to do in this regard. And you're like, really? <laughs> Who voted for this? Right? I, I, I give you a classic silly, silly example, but it makes the point. One day our city like a lot of other cities, I'm not trying to single them out that our city was the dumbest, our city was average dumb, decides that we're going to offer people who are using marijuana a civil penalty, a way to avoid criminalization, because Florida's going that direction, right? Now, there's two things about this that the city didn't realize. Not their fault. We didn't tell them. Number one, we had already stopped enforcing marijuana-related laws. <laughs> that ship has sailed. Thanks, thanks for the memo. Yeah. But we haven't arrested anyone in you know three years already. They didn't notice. They didn't notice this. <laughs> no, they didn't pay attention. Yeah. Number two. <laughs> number two. 
police officers don't like extortion naturally. They're just predisposed against bullying, right? If there's anything that'll motivate someone to sign up for being a police officer, it's, you know, big bad guy squishing uh, the underdog. That's what this naturally was at its core was we won't prosecute you if you give us 500 bucks. That's basically what it was when you all boiled it down. So the representative from the general counsel's office comes to roll call one day and explains this. I was not even the first one. I'm the only registered libertarian in the room. There were other guys who immediately said, no, we're not. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. Yeah. We're going to tell no. people you won't get criminally prosecuted if you give the city money. In any other context, that would be considered a, a felony bribe, right? right? Yeah. Of course you would. No. I, and, and, and the woman explaining it has all these forms. Take these forms with you. Everyone just left. She still had her stack of forms. And Please, did you really think that was going to work? So that's, how so that's, what I, that's what I mean by cops naturally have a libertarian streak. They wouldn't identify that as such. Right. Yeah. But they naturally are skeptical of, of government silliness. And they naturally feel like if we don't stand up for people's rights, God knows no one else is going to do it because the city is after your ass. Yeah, well, I think you make a good case. It's definitely something for for us to uh, think about on our end. But I do want to give Autumn the chance to uh, change the subject here. Uh, so. Oh, um, yeah. we could talk all night about police work, it sounds like, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm sure we could. So <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious to hear. And, you know, I've been in a position where I've been asked, like, okay, so what's the craziest thing you saw in your lineup? And I've worked in a couple of industries where there was some crazy stuff. But I bet. In your time working in financial matters, working in the White House in D.C., What's a little something that you observed there that might have really started to light some libertarian sparks in you or a little like inside baseball of what's going on that you can share with us, you know, with names changed and places altered? No, I appreciate that. Most of the stuff that I observed was not so much inside baseball as much as it was obvious and it was just a matter of waking up to it. Uh, although the the one inside baseball thing that I would uh, share is that it is true that the blob is populated by people who are statists. It is not, and, and that's not a, that should not be a shock or a coincidence, right? People who go to work for the state believe in in the state. Yeah, you know that is is uh, a, a true thing. Uh, when I was working for the White House as a civil servant by the way, I was not a political appointee, right? Uh, my, to, to give you an idea of where I was on the pecking order, my, bo my boss's 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 boss was the president. You, you, you get it? It wasn't like I was getting called into the Oval Office to give any advice. But the vast majority of people that I worked with were registered Democrats who believed that 
our job was to make government work better because government was a good idea. As opposed to in those days, you still had a number of Republicans. I would argue you don't have this so much anymore in the Republican Party. We still had a bunch of Republicans who believed that the object of the game was to shrink the government in terms of scope and scale and to get government out of the way in a regulatory sense, as well as a taxation sense. I don't think the Republican Party reflects that at all anymore, unfortunately which is part of the reason why there's a big opportunity for the Libertarian Party, but that's a, that's a slightly different story. But one, one big turning point for me was not so much inside baseball, but was when President uh, Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, had said, uh, read my lips, no new taxes, right? This was the 88 convention. And then went back on that uh, pledge. That was a real disappointment because, you know, I was still in my uh, 20s and, uh, you know, I thought I was a Republican and, uh, you know, I I thought the president was a Republican, too. Right. (laughs) And 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 you kind of learn either he's not or this is not what a Republican is anymore. And so that was a bit of a turning point. I definitely remember when my buddy Russ, uh, an IP attorney who still does IP work uh, for me now, told me in my backyard at a party one day that I was a libertarian. And I basically said, I don't say mean things to you. Why would you insult me like that? <laughs> and and he, he never made the jump to libertarian libertarianism but indeed i registered as a libertarian a a few years later i put it off i did not register as a libertarian until around 2010 or so uh to you youngsters that probably sounds like a long time ago but in the grand scheme of things it's not so long ago around the same time as i became a cop for me i i came to libertarianism from what i would consider to be the the right hand side which is to say, uh, believing that, you know, we need to, to reduce the scale and scope of government to make the world work better, to make the economy more efficient. Uh, people's lives would be better in the sense that they could better pursue peace and prosperity. Uh, that just objectively, things would work better. Socialism doesn't work. Capitalism does. Freedom is the key. I would characterize all that as you know, coming from the right side. And it wasn't until later that I began to appreciate what I would consider to be the the left side of libertarianism, which is to say, if it's okay for me to characterize it in the following fashion, even, and this will be a weird thing for a libertarian economist to say, imagine if socialism did work. In other words, imagine a world in which it were not true that capitalism objectively is the only way to allow an economy to run. Imagine that socialism was just as good if you could get good at it. You know, leave your uh, Mises aside for a moment. Uh, Never mind that there really is a road to serfdom. Never mind all that. Try to forget Milton Friedman and Thomas Sowell. Imagine for a moment that socialism worked. It still wouldn't have the moral authority to tell us what to do. We still, as citizens, 
have the right to make our own mistakes. And that's, you know, what I would characterize as coming to it uh, from the left-hand side. And it's not just, of course, a matter of efficiency and, and uh, the economy, but living your life by your own standards, doing what it is that you feel is uh, the decision for you to make, not only how to make that decision and, and which decisions turn on, on what ethical set, but even whether to make certain decisions, uh, how you run your family, how you decide to organize your life. You know, all of that is something that um, I think efficiency speaks to, that I think capitalism speaks to, but in some sense is, is not capitalism's business, that even if capitalism uh, were not the way to go, libertarianism would be still just as powerful. And I think that that is something that took uh, a while for me to appreciate having grown up as a conservative economist. So I, I think this is a perfect time to ask this as a presidential candidate hopeful, right? You're going to have to answer the question about what about abortion? So you're getting, you're getting close to addressing it anyway. How about, how about it? What about abortion? What is your answer going to be? Well, uh, I think there's a couple of different answers. Uh, depending on the context. Uh, one is we have to recognize that it's none of the federal government's business, even if you believe that it's the state government's business, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Mm -hmm. Even if you were someone who believed that the state government has to play some role, right? And, and I appreciate the argument for that. But even if you believe that, that does not imply that the federal government should play a role. In other words, Roe v. Wade really was a mistake in my view. And, and reverse striking it down really was important. And I think for all of the reasons that were ironically cited when Roe v. Wade was written, Sandra Day O'Connor openly said it was a political solution. She didn't use the word political, I don't think. Uh, but she did say that it was important to come to a uniformity of policy across the states, which, of course, is a, a silly, unconstitutional concept. It's just something that she made up and, and for which there was, in fairness to her, there was pressure uh, in this regard uh, at the time. Uh, so I, I appreciate the political pressure, but that it has no business uh, being curtsied to uh, on the Supreme Court. Having said that, uh, you know, what should states do? Obviously, we're all of a mind that we need as light a touch as possible from the state. And I think it is true what a number of libertarians have said, which is at some point you have to resign yourself to the fact that a line will have to be drawn. And, and that really bothers me a lot, but it's a concept that I believe is probably true. In other words, we do not live in a society, nor do we want to live in a society, the ethics of which suggest that we're going to take away people's abortions lock, stock, and barrel. That's a repugnant idea. It's not going to happen. Nor is our society's ethics such that people are going to say, yeah, I'm okay with you having an abortion with an hour to go before delivery. That just does not accurately reflect the ethics of our society. If there is a reason for being for any government at all, 
which we can debate at a later podcast. If there is any reason for government to exist, it is to protect our rights. Obviously, life is the most important of which. So the only debate really remaining is who is us? Who is our, when we say our rights? For me personally, uh, there is a difference legally. There ought to be a difference between viability and not viability. In other words, once a fetus reaches viability, I believe that you can make a powerful argument that the state has an interest in giving that life uh, every opportunity. And up until that point, I think you have a very difficult uphill climb to suggest that the state has any business at all weighing in on uh, the rights of uh, a mother to make these uh, decisions. But it is important, however you feel about it, to recognize that the states are going to have to grapple with these issues and that it is up to us individuals as a community to make decisions about what it is that we're going to criminalize in a way that recognizes that, as we were talking about before in terms of black markets, public policy has to be downstream of culture. And that means that we ought not to be criminalizing anything unless not only a majority, but an overwhelming virtual totality of reasonable people believe that something needs to be criminalized. Because if that's not the case, you do end up with mob majoritarianism. I do not believe that is an acceptable solution to say, well, our state's laws suck, but you can always move somewhere else. I, I, I get that. I appreciate that. I do think it's one of the reasons why states need to be able to chart their own future. It's a big part of the platform on which I'm running. But I don't believe that that lets you off the hook of saying, well, we're going to be a state that criminalizes things, even though only 51% of the population wants to criminalize it. Uh because you always have the opportunity to go somewhere else. No, that's not how it works. We do not make our decisions appropriately by a majority saying we don't like something and therefore uh, it should be criminalized. No, uh, as libertarians, we need to stand up against that firmly. Nor can we adopt some attitude that suggests that we need to lead the public in some moral sense, some ethical sense. Your morals and your ethics should have absolutely no bearing on your right to impose your views on somebody else. I always point out to anyone who gives a damn, and it, it shouldn't be anybody, that I was raised by a Lutheran and a Calvinist. So you can only imagine that my family would have plenty to say about anything that you want to ask them about, right? And it has to be completely irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a lot of success on the abortion issue in talking with people who thought that there should be very nuanced exceptions about when you can and can't get one. In invoking the question of, so, so you're comfortable with the government making deep inquiry in every instance of pregnancy 
and, and trusting them with that information about people's personal decisions about their lives. Oh, and being expeditious about it so things can be done timely also. I yeah. agree with you. If you're getting into the weeds and details, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I, it, it's just another. So that's the instance on the right. I, I find that occurs the most of people not thinking about the policing of these policies that they pr promote. The, the most common in, instance on the left of not thinking about how things are policed is when they propose certain restrictions on guns that people already own, right? They don't think about what does it look like to execute that law that you propose? Who are you going to hire to go door to door? Yeah. How many Ruby Ridges are you comfortable with, right? When we go on to that other issue. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you say that because we just had, well, I know that you're not in Florida anymore. But last week, we just did an episode with uh, another Mike who is currently in Florida, Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center. And we were talking about exactly this, how you moved to Florida not so yeah. long ago. He and I passed. We joked about this that we probably passed on the expressway in our respective U-Hauls. <laughs> right. So, yeah, he was just saying you can't enforce these federal laws if you don't have the state and local officers, you know, essentially helping you out. Well, that is exactly right. And that's something that states need to get better at standing up against the federal government. Uh, you know, even, and, and we don't see this, we don't see this type of political leadership, but we do need the type of political leadership who says, even if I agree with a federal statute, it's not right that state resources would be used, manipulated, dedicated to enforcing those. It's one of the reasons why I believe that the federal government needs to get out of the law enforcement business. Even if, even if we liked the FBI, even if we thought the FBI was the greatest thing since sliced bread and we thought the DEA was doing a good job and the ATF is your favorite uncle, even if you believe these things, it's inappropriate for the federal government to be in that business. Yeah, exactly. That is a good point. So, um, Autumn, you have any more questions? Uh, before we well, I, as we are coming close to the, the hour, I didn't think that we'd have the, uh, well, I didn't know, know that I was going to get so excited about the conversation with you, Mike. Um, I thought I was going to be petering out more than I, I feel great. I'm, I'm invigorated. <laughs> you are invigorated. Uh, don't, don't slow down now. I'm curious. I'm curious what, you know, we've got our things that, that have interested us. Is there anything that you have, have burning in your soul in this campaign that you feel like you're not getting enough time to talk about that we want to spare the few last <laughs> Uh To be honest, I manufacture time to talk about it. I, I do spend a lot of time talking about criminal justice yeah. reform. Uh, I also talk a lot about uh, something that that I feel very strongly about. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time talking about ending the Fed. And the the reason I do that is sort of twofold. One is that, or threefold. One is that I believe it's a strategic matter that we need to differentiate ourselves from Republicans and Democrats by telling the truth. If our message is inflation is naughty, I don't like inflation, I wish we had less inflation, elect me, I'll vote against inflation. I, I Stay home. 
I mean, don't even bother. That's what a Democrat would say. That's what Republicans say. Uh, I don't find that either interesting or differentiating. I also don't find it terribly well-informed, and I don't trust that that person's going to be able to do anything about it. The truth of the matter is that the problem that we have with inflation is deep, deeply seated in the structure of our government. It's an institutional level problem. The Federal Reserve is a 100 year experiment by well-meaning people, super talented people who really believe in the mission. And they have proved, if nothing else, that it's absolutely impossible for them to live up to their mission. It is just not true that the Fed can lean against the boom-bust cycle in a way that helps us out. Notwithstanding the best minds and the best efforts and uh, tremendous uh, esprit de corps, it just can't be done. And I feel that it's important that I spend time talking about it because it's such an important issue. The Fed is a bad idea whose time has come and gone. And because I personally have spent so much time in and around the Fed, I've met with the, the Fed Board of Governors in the boardroom itself. And I've had my research on the banking industry publicly cited by the, by the Fed chairman. And I've spent a lot of time writing comment letters on, on various regulations and interfacing with Fed economists. A lot of respect for the people there. So I know that the effort has been put in. You know, I mean no disrespect. But I also know that it's a system that cannot work. There is no amount of reform that's going to turn it around. This is not a matter of get a new chairman, get a new set of governors, right? We need to replace discretionary monetary with a rules-based system. And most economists have been moving in this direction. I shouldn't say most. A lot of economists have been moving in this direction ever since Milton Friedman suggested it 40 years ago. And I believe that soon that time will come when we have a majority of persons who, who recognize that in the economics community. And that'll be the time when we can move uh, legislation to sunset the Fed. In the meantime, we're going to have to replace the Board of Governors with people who believe in a rules-based system and get rid of the discretion. And the Fed has to go, too, for the other reasons uh, that the Fed exists. Its regulatory structure stinks. We need to make uh, Fed regulation optional, let banks get out from under it if they should choose to do so. Most banks do have the option today, but all Fed regulation needs to be optional in my view. I think banks should have the option of being unregulated if they want. Most of them would not choose that, but that should be an option for them. We need to take the Fed balance sheet and transfer it to the Treasury Department and make it subject to legislation and stop these midnight bailouts and these wacky decisions made by the government to, to protect deposits when they get in a certain mood or to bail out institutions when they get in a certain mood. It's got to go. And remember that the Fed is a very powerful political player. And that means it's going to be hard to stop them from doing stump, uh, dumb things like, like the, the digital currency that they're working on. The pilot program is up and running today. Uh, it's going to be rolled out in a wholesale fashion this year if they have their way. 
And soon, I don't know when, they're going to want to take it retail. That's a big deal. And it's, it's a big deal, not only for the privacy concerns, which are ginormous, because no one should be under the illusion that the Fed will not hand over data to the federal government. Of course it will. But also because it'll bias the way that market develops. We're in the next few years going to reach an inflection point in terms of our economy moving into a, a smart contract field. And it's going to change a lot of the way we do business. Everything from ordering to financial services to uh, distribution, uh, inventory management, uh, all kinds of contracting is going to completely change. It's going to run on blockchain technology. And we're going to need currencies to back that up. And I'm afraid that if the Fed gets in this business, it will stifle the type of development that we need. And that, to me, is as important as the privacy concerns. So for these reasons, we need the Fed uh, done because it's a big, powerful political player and it goes around ruining markets. And the Fed. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is a good note to end it on. It's definitely something that we talk about a lot on this show. The last time we spent a good amount of time talking about it was uh, episode 47. We had on the team from Monerotopia on the show. Um, they oh, came yeah. Out, yeah, they came out to take you in action tour event in New York City. So definitely go back and, and listen to that one uh, if you're listening to this podcast now if you, and you haven't already. Um, so thank no, you I very much. That's great. Like, they are a good team. They are very uh, sophisticated. I don't know them personally, of course. I shouldn't say of course. I don't know them personally. Uh, but everyone speaks of them as being a very uh, sophisticated team that that is involved there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I very much enjoyed my conversation with them. They're they're a very knowledgeable team and was able to explain everything about Monero in a very in a way yeah. that makes it easy under, to understand. Yeah. Well, that, that's the objective now, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yep, that's for sure. Uh, so how can people follow what you're doing? <sighs> Any way they want. They can go to the website. Uh, of course, you'd have to spell my name correctly if you want more of what we've been talking well, it's about. It's in you the episode title. Yeah, pretty sure we got it there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. You got my name uh, there perfectly. Uh, you can go to MikeTremont.com, see anything you want about uh, the campaign or anything else going on. If you're just interested in the platform, you can go to goldnewdeal.org. The platform that I'm running on is called the Gold New Deal. It's full of decentralized uh, reform measures. Very important. Uh, and I think uh, a lot of libertarian bread and butter that most people will really enjoy reading about. So that's at uh, goldnewdeal.org. Don't go to goldnewdeal.com because they'll try to sell you something, <laughs> which, is, which is not a bad idea. Right. It's probably a good idea, but it's the wrong website. If it, if it, go to yeah, it could be gold. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Up and up in the air, whether it would be a good price or not. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. Remember that. Uh, well, yeah. Remember that we still have a significant possibility of going into a uh, recession next year. Mm hmm. Uh, and, and that will erode the value of the dollar a little bit. So it might not be a bad time. I'm not giving any financial advice here. Um, but remember that we might have a recession next year. Yeah. And remember, too, that cryptocurrency uh, is hyper cyclical. Uh, when, when 
when markets uh, go up, when the economy is is doing well, when it's robust, when we have good, strong growth, uh, cryptocurrency goes doubly strong. And when we are not doing well, we're headed into a recession. When we're in a recessionary period, cryptocurrency does doubly poorly. So it's what we refer to as hypercyclical, not just merely plain vanilla cyclical. So again, I'm not giving advice here, but just bear that in mind uh, too, that crypto is a long run play. But that long run is getting shorter and shorter. I believe that we will have important breakthroughs in the utilization of cryptocurrencies uh, in less than a decade. So the greater fear that I have for folks deciding whether or not to be in cryptocurrencies is that it is not that you will be overinvested when things go wrong. My greater fear for friends of mine is that you will be underinvested when there is a melt up instead of a meltdown. That at some point it's going to take off and you're going to be like, dang, I should have sold that extra truck and put the money into crypto. Point taken. Yeah. That that's a good that's a good point. Uh, was or is there anything else that uh, you wanted to add, Autumn? No. Uh, that about uh, sums it up. Uh, you know, folks will see on the website my real phone number. If you want to give me a buzz, give me a text first, so I know who the heck you are. Uh, drop me an email at mike at uh, mike All right. Well. Uh, Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, it's been great having you on. Uh, I think we had a, a, lar a large number of different topics, but definitely got a unique perspective on the things that we did talk about. And I, I, I can tell there's more to talk about. So there's uh, always more. We'll never finish, Calvin. Uh, yeah. We just move from one thing to another. There's always more. Yeah. So we'll have to continue the conversation again uh, soon. Thank you. I really enjoyed being with you uh, both. It was actually a, a, just a, a joy to spend an hour with you guys. I wish we had more time, but we'll do it again. Thanks a lot, Mike. Same here. Thank you. All right. All right. You guys take care. Bye. All right. Good night. All right. That was a good 50th episode. Um, so as we're winding down here, I'll just uh, say again, that we have our Solutionary Center class coming up soon. Um, I, want, I want to make sure I get the date right before I give another shout out before it, but it is coming along um, very nicely. We'll be doing an official um, launch for it on social media uh, quite soon, but it will be August 17th in the evening. Um, from six to nine in Philadelphia. So definitely make every effort that you can to come out to that. Are you ready to down your calendar now, Autumn? <laughs> I am. Multiple times I went to put it in my calendar and I didn't. I'm putting it now. <laughs> okay, perfect. Perfect timing. All right. So definitely, definitely everyone make it out to that. Um, like, comment, subscribe to the show and check out our podcast feed as well if you're not already on there. Uh, I've already been told that most people listen to it that way anyway. So um, as, as far as using the podcast version, so I'm glad we launched that fairly yeah. recently. All right. Well, have a good night. Yeah. Uh, thanks everyone again for listening. And until next time, don't forget to take you in action. Bye.